It's amazing to me uh, how something can go from a, uh, a attempt to wish someone well to an attempt to curse someone very quickly when you move into a international context. Uh, some of you may know that Fran and I had the opportunity in college to spend some time in Greece. And when we got there, there were a few things they had to explain to us that we needed to understand were different in Greece than they were in the United States, and that what we meant might not be understood. Uh, one of the classics that uh, quickly comes to mind um, is the hand gesture known there as the Mountza. Okay, uh, this almost looks like a worship concert for us, right? Like we see all these people with their hands raised. That is not what's going at all. Uh, in Greece, if you take your palm and push it out towards someone, that is a way to tell them you are extremely displeased with them. Uh, this is people protesting the government. This is just basically a bunch of middle fingers, right? These people are just letting them know how they feel about things. Um, this can obviously cause problems. Uh, I remember seeing it with one of my classmates. They were crossing the street, didn't see a car coming, and the car stopped. And they said, thank you, thank you so much. That did not go so well because this is a, an offensive gesture. Uh, surely the Greek person in the car did not hear the thank you or maybe didn't speak English. So all they saw was this. And so it went from thank you for not hitting me to you need to learn how to drive, you know, expletive you, right? This is kind of what happened very quickly because there's just a different cultural understanding. Uh, similarly, one of these people is uh, wishing the world peace, the other person is celebrating killing a bunch of Nazis, and the other person is giving a British uh, version of, frankly, up yours, right? And they look very, very similar to us, but there are contextual situations. You have to be very careful with your peace sign, depending where you are in the world, particularly which way your palm is facing. Right? Because peace in some places can mean I want anything but peace for you in other places. The other one that it was always uh, funny for me, uh, can anybody tell me what this man is doing that would be very offensive in many places? Any guesses? It's not the crossing of the legs. He is showing the bottoms of his feet. In many cultures, if you sit in such a way, particularly men when they cross their legs like this, uh, if you show the bottom of your feet, you are saying, you are beneath me, right? And so you have to be very careful. Uh, men tend to cross their legs more like women do uh, in American parlance um, in some places in the world because just openly showing the bottom of your foot, particularly that totally right angle deal that men do sometimes here, right? That is just showing the world, I'm the best person in this room. You all deserve to look at the dirt underneath the soles of my shoes. And so when we got to Greece, there was a lot of conversations about, these are things you want to be careful of, all right? You do not want to sit and offend everyone around you. You know, when we would go to Starbucks, um, they would let us loose into Athens on Sunday afternoons, and we would all meet together and then go to church together on Sunday evening. And we would all meet at the Starbucks in the tourist area because it was an easy place to meet. And all these American students would sit and they'd all have their legs crossed like this, showing their, and it was just the most arrogant American display ever. A bunch of 18-year-olds saying to the world, you are the dirt under my feet, even though that's not what they meant at all. 
Because you just have to know the context of the world around you. There are times and places where you can do certain things that you cannot do at other times and places. It's all kind of a uh, activity in knowing where you're at and what time it is, right? To know your context well, to understand what words and actions and social cues and all of those things mean. Something that makes international travel very difficult um, because you can just unintentionally get yourself in trouble. As we continue through the book of Matthew... Uh, in Matthew 9, Jesus has a series of stories where he is going to come into conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And a lot of them are somewhat similar in that they are arguing over where they live and when they live. We've talked about in the book of Matthew, Jesus is proclaiming uh, this, this new kingdom, an upside-down world. Sometimes we call it the Messianic Age. This time that now that the Messiah has come, things are different than they were before. And things that used to be inappropriate are now appropriate. And things that um, used to be okay are now not okay anymore. And it's really interesting because Jesus, to kind of flip that metaphor on its head, is almost like the offensive traveler, right? Jesus walks into the context of um, Pharisaical Judaism, and he goes... You know, I know I'm the only one that feels this way, but I'm the one who's right. You guys are all wrong. The way that we treat people and the way that we engage in this world needs to be based on a new time and a new place. And that new time and place is the kingdom of God ushered in by the Messiah. And so we're going to have these stories where there's a conflict between their culture and their worldview and Jesus' culture and his worldview. And it informs us, if we are going to follow Jesus, how our worldview has to be different. How there are certain things that we do differently than those around us, particularly other religious people even. So, uh, starting out in Matthew 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given, much, uh, had given such authority to man. Um, this is a pretty open and shut case. This one is not too hard. Je uh, this man comes in, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. All right, this is a divine prerogative. This is something that only God should be able to say. And so the Pharisees, understandably, get upset. You cannot come in here proclaiming people's sins gone. God is the only person that's allowed to do that. And then Jesus plays this very interesting um, rhetorical trick. He says, which of these things is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. And... The reality is it's a little bit of both, right? It's nearly impossible to prove whether or not this guy's sins are forgiven. But for the human mind, 
okay, his sins are forgiven. We can kind of accept that one. But we're like, no, he's not going to get up and walk again. And so Jesus tries to say, I'm going to do something that's harder to do. And if I can do something that's harder, it's proof that I can do something easier. Uh, there's also a theological logic to this. Remember that when Jesus has these uh, moments with John the Baptist, where John the Baptist wants to know if Jesus is legitimately the Messiah, Jesus says, tell him that the blind see and the lame walk and the deaf hear. Right? This idea that this pouring out of miraculous power is sign that he is the Messiah, that he has the right to forgive sins. And so they have this interaction, and what Jesus is effectively saying is that we live in a different time and a different age. We live in a period now where, I, uh, where people are going to start having their sins forgiven. That instead of people living in the stigma and the shame of sin, we're going to take care of those things. Just like this man no longer has to live paralyzed, he no longer has to live um, under the burden of his uh, sins. His point here is to show his, his spiritual authority. Um, and while their rules say that this is not okay, that this can't happen, Jesus says, your rules were made before I came. And I change everything because I am this messianic king. I am this Messiah that's been promised. So, uh, Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus calls Matthew, and Matthew is an unlikely disciple to follow Jesus. Um, tax collectors, uh, we don't like them still, right? Very few people are like, yes, my IRS agent is my favorite person, right? We don't like to fill out our tax forms every April 15th or July 15th. For some of us, right, you know, we just like, uh, we don't like paying taxes. But it's even more onerous for these um, disciples in the ancient world because the way the system kind of worked is you paid whatever the tax collector told you you owed, and the tax collector was forced to pay Rome a certain amount. And whatever the gap was between what the tax collector said you owed and what he had to give to the government was his take. And he had the authority to give himself a little margin. Well, you can assume what would happen with most tax collectors, right? There was more than a little margin. And the people became very aware that they were paying exorbitant taxes and most of it wasn't even going to Rome. A bunch of it was going for the cushy lifestyle of these tax collectors. And so they were seen as cheats. Um, they were also involved in Rome. They were on the Roman payroll, so to speak, as Jewish people. And this was very offensive, right? It would be, uh, be kind of like in the American context. If somebody worked for the British government during the Revolutionary War, right? You are getting a paycheck from our occupiers, the people who are ruling over us that should not rule over us. This is not right. How are you involved with these people? And so Jesus calls Matthew to be part of his, his, his friends. And notice that Matthew then throws a party and who shows up for the party? 
Well, of course, all of the prostitutes and the tax collectors and all the other people in town that all the good, respectable people don't want to spend time with, right? Because those are the only people Matthew knows. Matthew doesn't have tons of Pharisee friends that come over for hamburgers, right? Because he's gross. He's a tax collector. He's been sort of socially ostracized, and so he hangs out with all the other socially ostracized people. And they have this party, and the Pharisees show up, and they say, you can't do this. See, for the Pharisees' worldview, the way you become a good person is you segregate yourself from bad people, right? Sometimes we kind of teach our kids to do this, right? You don't want them hanging out with the wrong kids, hanging out with the wrong crowd. And so it's like, listen, if there's a kid who misbehaves at school, have nothing to do with them. And this is the way the Pharisees said you go about life. There's good people and there's bad people. You hang out with good people and not bad people. Um, Another way to see this is um, they really treated sinners like zombies, okay? You were never going to change them to not be sinners. You were never going to heal them. They were just mindless, evil, infected, sinful people that were going to come towards you and bite you and turn them into a bad person like them, right? So you run away from sinners the way you run away from a zombie. And in that context, in a world where that's your rules of social engagement, Jesus says, my kingdom uh, goes on two principles that are very different than that. And he states them so fast, it's easy to miss their significance. The first is, these people are not zombies. They are sick people who need a doctor. We are not in a zombie movie. We are in an infirmary. If we believe that sin is really a real thing and a bad thing, That doing things that God doesn't desire for us to do hurts us and ruins our lives. Then our friends that do things that God doesn't want them to do are not evil zombies trying to infect us. They are sick people who are dying from their own disease. And Jesus goes, of course, a doctor would go to heal those people. Imagine, right, if somebody strolls into the ER and Houston was like, you're sick. I'm not going to deal with you. That's ridiculous. That's his job, right? When sick people come in, you try to make them better. And Jesus says, this is the way that it works in my kingdom. That you who've been saved and brought out of a lifestyle that destroys, you help other people get out of that lifestyle too. You don't just run away out of fear that you'll get drawn back in. It's a very sort of offensive strategy instead of a defensive strategy. But second of all, he says this thing that is very... Um, I think it's very broad and it's very interesting and I think we have to struggle with a little bit. Learn what this means, and he quotes the Hebrew Bible, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Sacrifice in the Hebrew Bible is sort of the way that you do spiritual accounting, right? It's the way that you get rid of sin is you make sure you sacrifice an animal and clean yourself from that sin. And so sacrifice is following the rules. It's being spiritually litigious. It's making sure that every offense is met with some kind of sacrifice to get rid of the offense and that we don't let anything go because we care about righteousness. And several times throughout the Hebrew Bible, God says, no. At one point he goes, who asked for all these sacrifices? It's amazing because you know who asked for them? God asked for them. He knows that he asked for them. But it's a rhetorical point. He goes, who asked for all this junk? I mean, I said to do this, but this isn't what I was talking about. And it's far more important to me that you show mercy to one another than you sit around following a bunch of rules. 
And this is what Jesus says to these Pharisees. He says, you are so worried if that woman that sits across the table from you at a party is clean or unclean based on the law of Moses, which don't get me wrong, is good. But still, if you are so preoccupied with that, that you cannot show basic human kindness to someone who is not like you, you have missed the point. Because what I ultimately want is not sacrifice, is not rule keeping, it's not legal speak. It's treating people with mercy and kindness and grace. That is a huge statement. Because you know that at every point in your life where you have been encouraged to mistreat someone or to be bad to someone or to be separate from someone, the answer has always been some kind of rule, right? Well, you know, they did do X, right? When we say, oh, why are we so unmerciful towards whoever that did whatever? Well, they broke a rule. And Jesus says, I want mercy, not sacrifice. And if that means hanging out with people that give me a bad reputation and breaking your little social rules, I don't care because it's my time, not your time. It is my kingdom and my rules, not yours. And Jesus, again, upends sort of their social structure. All right, one more little story to kind of finish this off. Jesus, John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do they people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the wineskins will burst. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Uh, this starts, this is the most spurious of these fights. Right? If you notice the pattern here literary, uh, literarily, Jesus starts with really big issues and they go to pedantic issues. So claiming to be God that you can forgive sins, that's blasphemy. That's a pretty big issue. And then hanging out with sinners is kind of a righteousness sin issue. And now the complaint is you go to too many parties, Jesus. You are too much of a party animal. Uh, this is interesting. Um, it conflicts both with the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist. Disciples of John the Baptist were known for doing a lot of fasting and avoiding food. And then here comes Jesus, and he's constantly, literally going to parties, right? He's always having something to drink, eating some good food, enjoying people. And they're like, you know, this is just not fair. Our sense of religiousness is like being really mopey and not doing anything fun. And your religiousness is going to parties. That is not a fair deal. You're clearly not as righteous as us because you're not denying yourself the things that we're denying. And Jesus goes, you don't know what time it is. These people are hanging out with the Messiah. When the Messiah's in town, you have a party. You don't get all glum. He goes, there's going to become a time where I'm going to leave and things are going to change. But for the time being, we're going to have a good time because I'm here and that is what this new messianic era is about. Uh, he then begins to talk about wineskins. And this part gets weird for us because we don't know what this is, right? 
Um, in the ancient world, what you do, this is some sort of animal here that has been killed and cleaned and sewn back up. And you would take uh, an animal's, um, all of them, you see they still have legs. We have examples of this from the ancient world. And they keep the legs and the necks and everything. You clean out all the insides and then you sew them all back up. And you kind of turn it into leather. You process it so it's like a leathery substance. And then you would fill it with wine or a liquid. And this is how you get something that you could carry wine around, right? They're not making glass bottles to carry wine in the ancient world. And Jesus starts to talk about old and new wineskins. The old wineskins are going to be a little uh, more brittle. They're going to be kind of broken down. And Jesus says, if you put new wine in it, wine that's just early in fermentation, uh, what's going to happen in a pre-refrigeration world if you put new wine in? It's going to slowly become older wine, right? Those bacteria are going to continue to eat away at the sugars. If you don't know much about how alcohol is made, there's going to be bacteria in the juice that's going to eat the sugars, and they're going to, you know, fart out CO2 and alcohol, and slowly it's going to expand. And if you have a brittle wineskin with new wine, as that wine starts to uh, continue to ferment, it's going to become gassy, and it's going to get bigger, and it's going to get bloated, and it's going to pop the wineskin. And so if you have an old, brittle wineskin, all you can put in it is wine that's already done as much fermentation as it's going to do. He says, instead, if you have a new wineskin that has some flex and give to it, that's what you put new wine into. And his message is very clear. This kingdom that I'm putting in place, this changing of the world, you cannot fit this into your old systems and your old ways of being. It will ruin both the old thing and the new thing. The wine will spill out and your, your, uh, your wineskin will burst. Or to use a cloth comparison. He says, if you put an unshrunk piece of cloth on a garment that has gone through the laundry a bunch of times, the first time it comes through the laundry, that patch will shrink and shrivel and just rip out. And it will destroy both the garment and the patch. We're in a new time in a new era. It's my time in my era. We're going to do things differently. All right, so what does that matter, right? Is these just a bunch of pedantic debates uh, for Jesus and his era of Judaism? Um, I want to suggest to you that the challenge for many of us is that the church is always tempted to go to old wineskins. That the very things that Jesus told the Pharisees we're not going to do anymore are the things that 2,000 years later, we're still like, Jesus, can't we just do it this way? And he's like, no, I've explained. That is not right. That is not the time you live in. That is not the era that you live in. The time for death and disease is over. And the age for healing and forgiveness is here. The time where the church operates based on fear and exclusion of other people is over. And instead, we have an age of welcome and friendship that is extended to the world. It's a time of judgment and condemnation of others is over so that we can have an age of mercy. And it's not a time for us to mourn, but a time to rejoice because Jesus is here and he's with us. If pharisaical wineskins were out of date in the year 2,000 years ago, they are really out of date today. 
And yet so often we are tempted to be like, but those people aren't following the rules and they're not good enough and they're not okay because they're not following all the rules. And I think Jesus still looks at us and goes, I want mercy. Are you a merciful people? When you engage with someone who is not like you and particularly does not follow kind of your cultural rules and systems, do you show them mercy or do you say, hey, they're not following the rules? When you look at the world around you, do you look at people who are sick and need of help? People who are having destructive things happen in their lives? Or do you look at them like they have cooties and run away and escape from them? Because I think we've all been, probably ourselves, in churches and even our, in our own thoughts, react to the world around us as it's the scary zombie world that's full of bad people that don't follow the rules. We're the nice safe world that's batten down the hatches and make sure that we follow all the rules. And there's no desire for mercy and there's no desire to go out as a doctor who helps the sick. And Jesus says, that time is done. The time of you living around in shame and guilt for your sin. The feeling like you're unworthy and you're no good because of the things you used to do. That time is done. That guilt age is over. Because I have the power to say get up and walk and I have the power to say your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. If I said it, I believe it. You should too. And that really matters. That Jesus is trying to, when we talk about an upside down world, that is the kind of world Jesus is trying to help us live in. Where we rejoice because the Messiah has given us new opportunities. So it's my prayer that we be a people who take up new wineskins. Uh, that we declare to people that Jesus takes away sins and the guilt and the shame of them. That we show compassion to other people who are victims of sin just as we once were. That we... Um, that we be people of mercy and not people that demand sacrifice. And we just pray that we'll feast and rejoice because Jesus has turned the world upside down and we live by his rules and not ours.